If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes to us from the book of Revelation, as we will be looking at chapter 1 in verses 9 to 20 this morning. So, Revelation chapter 1 in verses 9 to 20. Revelation chapter 1 and verses 9 to 20. Brothers and sisters, if you would, please hear with me the reading of God's Word. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those things that are, and those things that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Well, today, brothers and sisters, we will be looking at the opening vision of the book of Revelation, which is really representative of us of the entire message of this book, as this first vision is going to extend all the way to the end of chapter 3. And what we will see throughout this first vision is how the exalted Savior, Jesus Christ, relates to His church. Now this vision that is given to John, we see begins like many messages that are given to God's prophets. It is one that has been commissioned. Right? That is how it starts. That is how it began. We, we read, write what you saw. Right? A prophet doesn't write down his own words or his own thoughts. We covered that back in, in the book of Jonah. Right? Rather, a, a prophet writes down what he has been told by the Lord, which is what gives those words 
It's what gives that teaching its authority. And we see this in verse 11. John hears a voice like a trumpet. And it spoke to him saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Now the trumpet, this, this trumpet sound, is likewise something that we hear when you enter into the presence of the Lord. When God meets with His people. When God comes down to, to visit His people. This is what Moses heard in Exodus chapter 19. As he ventures on to Mount Sinai, we're told that this loud trumpet sound happens. And the, the Israelites all tremble as they hear it. This vision itself is one just like the prophet Ezekiel had in Ezekiel chapter 2 and verse 2. There we are told this, that the Lord speaks to him, and the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speak to me. Right? This is very much the, the same way that, that John is approached. Right? John is, is, is raptured up. He has this ecstatic experience with the Lord. Now the day in which this occurs is what we're told is called the Lord's Day. It happens on the Lord's Day. And we shouldn't think that this happens by coincidence or by chance that the Lord meets with His people on His day. Right? Think of it like the Lord's Supper. Right? The Lord's Supper, the Lord's Day. What is communicating to us is something that belongs to the Lord. This is the day that is the Lord's. This is the day that He has sanctified. And so this is the day that he meets with his servant John. This is the only time in the Scripture that we actually hear this phrase, the, the Lord's Day used. This is that day that Christ established through His resurrection on the first day of the week in which He met then with the church in which the apostles then started to meet on the first day of the week. We read this in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. We were told that it was now on the first day of the week that the saints gathered weekly to break bread. Right? Here we see then that a Sabbath still exists, doesn't it? Just the Jewishness of the Sabbath day has been uh, extinguished. It has been removed. So no longer is it the, the last day of the week, but now the first day of the week as we are looking back to the cross, but also as we look forward ahead to the eternal rest that awaits the saints. And as he enters into this vision, we see that John is directed to write what he saw to seven particular churches. Right? Write what you see to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Now what's interesting is the order that this is given is both the order in which he actually writes these letters it's also the order in which they would have been delivered. Now remember, he's not writing seven individual letters. He is writing a letter. And in it, he's writing to these seven churches. And so, these churches would have been on what, what would have been kind of a, a, we can think of it as a U-shaped road, or maybe an upside-down U-shaped road, or, or an oval kind of cut in half that would have been easy to, for someone to come and deliver. Uh, you would have Ephesus down below. Then you would have had going north Smyrna. Pergamum would have been the most north city. And then you would have began to, to come back down south to Sardis and Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Now these cities were located 
about 30 to 50 miles apart from one another on this circular road. Now we're told that at this time, though, John is, is now banished to an island called Patmos. He would have been banished there by the emperor Domitian. And this island of Patmos would have been 60 miles outside of Ephesus. Patmos, we are told, was a, in, in extra biblical works, was a, a penal settlement for those who, who kind of, uh, caused trouble, uh, in, in the Roman Empire. You would have been kind of banished to this island of Patmos. It was a, a penal settlement, we said. And John, we are told, was, was sent there on account of what? On account of the Word of God and the, the testimony of Jesus. And so we see here that, that John is the perfect representative of the church. Right? John is the, is the perfect one to be writing this letter to the churches, isn't he? As John is, is one who has experienced the very thing that he is proclaiming to the other churches. Right? John is the one who has already been a faithful witness, has he not? He is the one who is suffering persecution on account of Christ in the Word. He is the one who has not compromised his faith. He is the one who has been persecuted by the government. And yet, John is enduring through it all. Right? John, we have to see, is not one who is, who is off living in luxury somewhere, telling the saints, be faithful witnesses. Don't compromise even though you are going to suffer gravely. Right? John is writing to a persecuted church as a persecuted saint. Which makes it all the more real to the saints, doesn't it? And this leads us then to consider the first point that I want us to see this morning, which then we will title John's Circumstances. So after coming or going over a few of the background details that come to us in verses 10 and 11, what I really want us to focus on is a few things that we see here in verse 9. In verse 9, let's read that once more. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus. Right? This is what I want us to see, these, these terms that are, that are used here. Tribulation, kingdom, and patient endurance. As these things describe to us what John is going through in his present circumstances in which he is sharing with the church in, in which he is being a partaker in with his brothers and sisters, all which only have meaning as they have reference back to Christ. Now, in American evangelical Christianity today, we are often been told and taught that the tribulation is something that the, the church will experience uh, somewhere in the future, right? just prior to Christ's second advent. But what we see here in our text is that is not the case. Right? Tribulation just means distress. Tribulation just means affliction, persecution. And so John is saying, I'm suffering in tribulation. I'm being persecuted just like you are. Right? They presently, in the first century, were enduring the tribulation. Now yes, the tribulation will intensify as we approach the coming of Christ, but the church will forever be suffering the tribulation until He returns. Right? John is suffering tribulation as he is being separate 
and been made to be separated from the church. He has been banished to this remote island away from everyone and everything that he knows. Now, there are two views uh, which would tell us how John might have been living on this island called Patmos. The first view would say that John had it rather easy there. What we mean by easy is that he was relatively free to live upon the island. Right? That, is, that is one view of John's life on the island. The other view is a far more grim view. That view would say that John didn't have uh, sufficient food or drink or place to lay his head, that he was kept in prison, and that he was constantly be made to work and watched over as a prisoner of Rome. And I think this is the view that is probably uh, more likely, and this is the view that is more attested to in extra-biblical writings as well. But in either view, what we need to see is that John has been stripped of everything. Right? He's been placed on this island, no longer able to, to preach Christ crucified to the saints and to the churches in Asia Minor, which he, he would have been preaching to. Right? He no longer was able to, to gather with the saints and, and worship his Savior. No longer was he able to interact and be amongst those whom he loved, which would eat away at the very strongest of us here. But what we also need to see is that John doesn't see himself as doing anything special. He doesn't see himself doing anything special at all. He simply calls himself a partner in the tribulation. He is expressing solidarity with all of the churches. He's saying, I am experiencing tribulation just as all of you are experiencing tribulation as well. And so we need to see that the tribulation is something common. It's something to be expected. Right? Tribulation is not an uncommon thing or something that happens sporadically. And in fact, Christ our Savior tells us this. In John chapter 16 and verse 33, this is what Jesus says. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, but in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, for you have overcome the world. What we need to see here in this statement and even in the book of Revelation is that there are two sides of the Christian life. There are two sides to the Christian life. There is this suffering. There is this tribulation that is taking place throughout the life of the saints. Yet, Jesus tells us, even when we suffer, we will have peace right? because we have overcome the world. But how will we have peace? Well, because we are partakers of Christ's kingdom. Right? Here is the other side of what it means to be a Christian in this world. Not only do we suffer, but we are kingdom citizens in Christ today as well, which is the second term that I want us to see. Right? We need to understand King Jesus reigns right now over His church. Right? This is the kingdom that He has inaugurated in His first coming. It is this kingdom that he established through his death and through his resurrection. It is through that death and resurrection that he has already won the battle, that he has defeated his enemies, that he has purchased for himself a kingdom. A kingdom composed of saints. A kingdom which is his church. And so far, brothers and sisters, and as we obey and as we maintain our faithful witness, we in this world today reign with Christ in the present as well. So when we maintain this faithful witness, 
Right? When we are obedient, when we don't compromise, when we continue to, to kill sin and overcome temptation in this world, you, today, now, in this present evil age, are reigning with Christ. Right? You presently reign with Christ. To the first century world, to the, the Roman Empire, John looked the loser, didn't he? He looked like he was the loser to everyone. He was the one who was banished out on the island of Patmos. Right? But John is the one who wrote John 16.33. John is the one who was there with the Savior and who heard these words spoken to him. John knew, although everyone else thought he was the loser, that he was the victor already in Christ. Right? John understands that. And now he is communicating that to the church in our text this morning. Right? He is communicating that there are certain things that come along with kingdom membership on earth. All of you here are, are a member to something, probably, and so you understand that, that example. Right? If you are a member of the church here, you understand that there are certain things that come along with being a member of the church. Right? There are certain privileges, there are certain responsibilities that as members you have that, that a non-member doesn't have, like, like voting. Right? Some of you here today maybe are, are members at, at Costco or you are members at Sam's Club and you have certain privileges that, that other folks don't have as being a member of those places. And so what John is saying is that there are certain things that you will experience as members of this kingdom that others won't. And one of the things that you will experience as kingdom members is tribulation. Right? Being a member of the kingdom is the cause of tribulation. Right? John wouldn't have been banished to the island of Patmos if he was not a member of the kingdom. And so his kingdom membership brought with it tribulation. Right? It brought with him punishment and persecution. Because as a kingdom member, John was living the kingdom life. Right? He bore testimony of his Savior, Jesus Christ. And so you see, brothers and sisters, being a member of the kingdom and kingdom privileges are not always what people think they are. Right? When you tell someone, I belong to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, others probably want to be a part of that, don't they? Because it sounds delightful. It sounds Luxurious, doesn't it? Oh, a member of the kingdom of Jesus. But what they don't see is that, is that it's not meant to be a kingdom in Jesus in, the, in a very natural sense in which the way natural eyes and minds would think about it. It is not reigning in the way that, that a natural man would want to reign here on earth. Right? It is very different. Right? We reign in a spiritual kingdom in a very spiritual way with Christ, overcoming our spiritual enemies. But this is why in Christianity, so many people want an easy Christianity, don't they? Right? They want an easy Christianity. They want to be told that they can, they can believe anything that they want, that they can live any way that they want, that they can practice their faith any way that they want. That God just wants them to be happy and have fulfillment in their life and have this kind of earthly joy. All things which exclude what? Trial, persecution, right? suffering... But what we need to understand is that trial and persecution is par and parcel with what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. Right? Jesus says this. 
But this is why, brothers and sisters, that as partakers of the tribulation in the kingdom, we need patient endurance. Right? That is a, the last term here in verse 9 that I want us to see. What we need to understand is that the one who has a life of ease and comfort has no need for patient endurance, do they? The one who is, number one, the first person in the checkout line at the grocery store doesn't need patient endurance, do they? It's you who are four carts back who only have bread and butter in your hand and the other carts in front of you have overflowing carts, right? It's you who needs to have the patient endurance as you wait. But time and time again, this is what we see in the book of Revelation. The saints are being told, have patient endurance. Have patient endurance. Why? Because the Christian life, the kingdom life, is not an easy life. It's not an easy life to live. It is a hard life. But this is the message of John. Soon it won't be. Christ is coming. This is John's message to the church. Faithful endurance today on the earth through tribulation... Maintaining your Christian witness is not easy. But if you hope to enter paradise with God, it is something that is necessary. It is not easy, but it is something that is necessary. This is why the saints are told throughout the book of Revelation to maintain their witness, to continue to press on, to endure patiently to the bitter end. They are constantly being told this. Let me give you an example are many examples of what I mean. Don't turn with me. Just listen to this, okay? Revelation chapter 2, verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. In verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for My name's sake. In verse 19 of chapter 2, I know your works, your love and faith in service and patient endurance. In verse 3, or excuse me, chapter 3, verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial. In chapter 13, in verse 10, right, we continue to see this. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. 14.12 Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus Christ. One last one. Chapter 16 and verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Right? It's a call to, to patient endurance. Right? Do we see, brothers and sisters, how important patient endurance is in the Christian life? That it is being spoken of again and again and again. And so the question is for you here today, are there any of you here who are growing weary in your Christian life? Are there any of you here who are growing tired of the constant struggle and battle with sin in your life? That you're ready to just give it up? Are you tired of being excluded from things? 
or not having a whole plethora of, of friends because you are a Christian. And so you just want to kind of throw in the towel and give it all up. Just give in to it. John says, don't. He says, don't. For the, the fullness of the kingdom is yet to be experienced. The blessings of the, of the kingdom will soon come in its fullness for you. Right? Your circumstances, brothers and sisters, even though they might be rough, even though they might be hard, will, like John's, one day change. And they will change for the better. Right? What we experience is, is experienced now for a time. But the one who endures to the end will, will reign with Christ forever as kings in His kingdom. But the wicked, those who don't heed the words of this book, those who apostatize, those who leave the faith for some temporary relief and some earthly moments of glory, it is they who will experience eternal punishment in hell forever. Right? Not wanting to, to, to experience any pain here on earth, but rather wanting to join in with the happiness and the joy that, that this world offers and provides for you. And so, brothers and sisters, let that not be the case here. Let us heed the words of John. Let us amen the words of John. As his brothers and sisters who likewise are partakers of the tribulation of the kingdom and of patient endurance in Christ. This takes us then to point number two that I want us to look at this morning, which really is covered through verses 12 to 16. And this is Jesus' glory. Jesus' glory. We looked at John's circumstances, but now here John, in these circumstances, beholds the illustrious and the glorious Christ. Look with me please, starting at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now, brothers and sisters, what I don't want us to do is hear that and start to, to visualize some picture of Christ as someone who has white woolly hair with some sharp sword coming out of his mouth whose, whose feet are really bronze, right? We need to understand that this is not to be interpreted literally, but rather we are to to, to keep interpreting this book using that proper method of interpretation that John taught us way back in Revelation 1.1, which is that we are to interpret it figuratively or symbolically as it was meant to be interpreted. Okay, And so, as John is, is caught up in this vision, what do we see? That he sees seven golden lampstands in the, in the, in the midst of the... Excuse me, in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Now, I ask you, where do we hear this Son of Man language before? If you remember Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and He came to the Ancient of Days. Now, if you remember from our study in Mark's Gospel, and really throughout the Gospels, the Son of Man is Jesus' favorite title for Himself. It's actually used, I believe, 80 to 81 times throughout the Gospels. And of those 80 or 81 times, all but two Jesus uses of Himself. Right? He calls Himself, the, identifies as Himself as the, as the Son of Man. And now as the Son of Man in Daniel 7, what we see is the exalted Christ going to the Father, the Ancient of Days. And in John's vision, then we have to ask, what is this Son of Man wearing? Now we're told He's wearing a long robe and with a golden sash around His chest. And so, what we want to do is start asking ourselves, where else in Scripture do we see these things so that we might understand what they mean or what they're meant to convey to us? And so, as many of you know, right, these things that are being described are talking about priestly garments. Right? These are things that the Lord told the priests that they were to wear. He commanded them to wear these holy garments. And we see this in a text like Exodus. Exodus chapter 28 and verse 4. This is where we read, These are the garments that they shall make. A breastpiece, an ephod, here, here it is, a, a robe, a coat of checker, a turban, and here we go again, and a sash. And so what we need to see here is that Jesus is being portrayed to us as a heavenly priest. He is being portrayed as a heavenly priest who walks in the midst of lampstands. Now this is going to have some great significance that we'll, we'll come back to later. But if you think about the, the priests in the temple right, who worked amongst the lampstands, we, we might come to identify what this means. Jesus is a heavenly priest amongst the lampstands. Now what else are we told here? That His hair on His head was white like white wool, like snow. Now we need to understand this too comes from that Daniel chapter 7 passage. Daniel chapter 7 verse 9. This is what we're told. Although it's not describing here the Son of Man, but here it's describing the Ancient of Days. And this is where we read this. As I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took His seat, His clothing white as snow, and the hair on his head like pure wool. What do we see here? Right, Jesus being identified with God, right? He is being identified with divinity. Right? Jesus is deity here. Right? That which described the ancient of days is used to describe Jesus Christ Himself. And so we have to ask, what does white though symbolize? White symbolizes purity, doesn't it? symbolizes purity. This is what we see that as, as Christians, we need to be washed so that we are white as snow. Right? That's what we're told in, in, in uh, the prophet Isaiah. If you think back to uh, Zechariah's vision in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 3, he has this vision where Satan accuses Joshua and, and the Lord rebukes him and tells him, take off those filthy rags for you have been cleansed from your iniquity washed white as snow. He's been, he's been made to put on now white garments, we are told there. And so we need to see 
that, that well, we need to be made. We need to be made morally pure. Right? We need to be washed. Right? But those things that we need to be, Christ already is. Right? Christ is pure. Right? He is light. In Him there is no darkness. Now, not only though is what's being conveyed to John this vision of a heavenly, a perfect, pure priest, but also he is described here as having eyes like the flames of fire. This too harkens back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 12, which actually describe God on his throne as a judge. Right? So it is, it is describing to his God as, or Jesus as judge, or his, his role as judge on the throne. We're also told his feet are like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. What does that portray to us? Strength? Stability? Right? Also, it's those, it's that strong bronze feet that walks amongst his church that also does what? It treads upon all evil. And so it likewise portrays to us Christ as King. His voice, we're told, like the roar of many waters is an echo of Daniel chapter 10, verse 6. We're told there that Daniel hears one whose, whose sound of his words were like the sound of a multitude. And so what is this meant to convey in Revelation? It's meant to convey the, the voice of the Lord as being powerful right, and mighty. In verse 16, we're told that he holds in his right hand seven stars, which conveys what? Right? God's sovereignty. Right? His, his control over all things. This sharp, two-edged sword that comes from His mouth. Right? We get this from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4, where we, where we read this. But with righteousness He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek on the earth. And He shall strike the earth with the rod of His mouth. And so this two-edged sword that is coming from the mouth of Christ pictures Him as eschatological judge who will come and who will stamp out all those who persecute His church. And then we finally are told in this vision that His face was like a sun shining in full strength. One commentator puts it this way, that this describes the brilliance about Christ that surrounded His person. I like the way that he put that. It describes to us the brilliance of Christ that surrounds His person. This, this shining in full strength. Uh, we might think of this as something to the effect of what John and, and James and Peter saw at the Mount of Transfiguration. And so that we see in our text then, a picture, a vision, this word picture given to John of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. Right? That, is, that is this picture that John has given, this vision that he has given. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. That is what all of these things are meant to convey to John. Right? That he, he tends to his church as priest. Like the priest ten, tended to the lampstands in the Old Testament. Right? He treads on his enemies as king. And he sovereignly rules over his church as king. And he will bring judgment and blessing to this earth. Right? With the power and might of his, of his word as prophet. Right? This is the picture that we see. The glory of the one and only Jesus Christ. This is the vision that John beholds. The majesty and the splendor which is our Lord's. 
And now this great reality John is given in order to convey to the churches. To convey what? Right? To alert them that Christ is one day coming. That He is one day coming. And as King and as Judge, He is coming to, to purge out all evil. That He is coming as priest to purify and to perfect His church. Yet until then, now He is watching over you and taking care of us through the tribulation. Right? That Christ stands with this church here today. That He protects us. That He guides us. That He blesses us. And that He guards His kingdom people. Right? That is what this vision is meant to portray to us. This now leads us then, brothers and sisters, to our, our third and final point this morning, which we will entitle, The Joyous Message. The Joyous Message. Look at verses 17-20 to 20 once more with me, please. When I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead. But He laid His right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. I was planning on turning to Daniel and demonstrating this again, but I won't do this. But we see the exact same thing. Daniel 10, verses 9 and 10, if you want to check it for yourself later. He does the exact same thing. He falls to his knees, just as John falls to his knees as he beholds the glory of God. And as you read that, don't you start to think to yourself how, how drastically different did the saints of old react when they entered into the presence of Christ than people do today when they enter into the presence of Christ? Right? Don't we today live in kind of a, 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 a culture of, of, of being a buddy with Christ today? Right? We, we come into the sanctuary of the Lord treating Jesus as if He is just our friend? Yes, He is our friend, but He is, he is much more than just a friend. And so we ought not to come into the sanctuary of the Lord as if we are coming to give Jesus, our bro, a high five. As so many do today. Right? That is only the response of those who are too ignorant to foresee the splendor of His glory. Because if you've seen the splendor of His glory like John and like Daniel, you wouldn't come in here patting Jesus on the back, but instead you would come into the presence of the Lord and you would be crumbling on your knees. That is what the saints of old did. That is our attitude. Is that your attitude as you come into the presence of the Lord each and every Lord's Day? To crumble at your knees before Him as you enter into His presence and as you behold His glory? Do we come in here with a, a spirit and a disposition of humility and contrition and brokenness? Do we come in here all inspired by our Lord, full of gratitude that He has allowed us to enter into His presence when we have no business standing before Him? 
in all of His glory? Our Lord says in Isaiah 55, verse 17, I dwell in the high and the holy place and also with Him who is of contrite and lowly spirit. That is who He comes and dwells with. Those who are of contrite and lowly spirit. And right after that, in Isaiah 57, verse 15, He also then adds, and He does it to revive the spirit of the lowly. This is what we see exactly in our text today, do we not? That is, John falls to his knees overwhelmed by the glory of God. What does Christ do? He lays his hand upon John. And what's his message to John? Fear not. Fear not. That is a joyous message, is it not? Fear not, brothers and sisters. That is the same thing Christ does with you here today. If you are a believer, as you walk in the sanctuary, He has placed His hand upon you and His message to each and every one of you today is fear not. For you have no reason to fear. For you have all that you need in Me. That is His message to you today. Jesus goes on to say, fear not. Why? For I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades. Now where do we hear this title? I am the first and the last. This comes to us from Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me there is no God. Do we not see that Jesus is saying, I am God. The next time someone wants to deny the divinity of Christ, take them to this passage. Take them to Isaiah 44. Take them to Revelation and show them this. That in Isaiah 44, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Jesus takes for that title upon Himself. Claiming, I am God. Telling John, have no fear for I am God. Have no fear for I have conquered death in the grave. And I am now not only the author of life, but the dispenser of life. And as the one who has conquered death in the grave, I likewise now have with me the keys of death in Hades. Now what we need to understand is that Hades here does not mean hell. Rather, here, Hades means the realm of the dead or the grave. That's how it's used more often than not. And that's what we need to understand it being used here today. He's saying, I have the keys to the realm of death as the one who has conquered it. And so fear not, for even if you die, I have the keys to open and raise you up to eternal life. That is what he's telling. What is someone who has keys to something? What do they have? They have control over it. Jesus is saying, I have control over death and the grave, so do not fear what man can do to you. Fear not. And then He instructs John, write these things that you have seen. Write the things that are and write the things that will take place. Now, brothers and sisters, let me tell you, the book of Revelation has been butchered by many through the misreading and misunderstanding of this verse right here. They take this, the things that you have seen, chapter 1. The things that are, chapter 2 and 3. The things that are going to take place, 4 and beyond. 
We are not to understand the book of Revelation in this way. But rather what we need to see is that this is simply describing for us things that are presented throughout the book of Revelation. Right? John, throughout the book, in every vision that we see, is going to be describing these three things. You're going to see them on repeat over and over again in all of the visions. You're going to see the things that have taken place, uh, or the things that he has seen, the things that are, and the things that must take place. You're going to see that over and over again as we study the book. That is all John is saying. These three things you're going to see presented to you over and over throughout the book of Revelation. So there's no need to artificially chop up the book. Right? And then in verse 20, he explains to John who are these seven stars in his hand? What are the seven lampstands that he is in the midst of? And he tells us what? The, the seven stars are the seven angels of the churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And why does he tell John to, to write this down and give to the church? Is to reiterate, don't worry. Right? I have full control. I have the stars in my hands. And I walk amongst the churches presently today. And so for you, brothers and sisters, there is no safer place to be than in the hand of the Lord or by the Lord's feet. Right? There is no safer place to be. So he's saying, don't worry. I have control over all of things. So, so press on in the Christian life. Do not worry. Maintain your faithful witness. He's saying, I am ministering to you. This is when I said that we'll hearken back to the symbolism of, of the heavenly priestly vision that He's given amongst the churches. Here, here is where we see it. Here is where we see it. What did the priest of the Old Testament do with the lampstand in the temple? They constantly watched over it. Made sure it was filled with oil made sure that the wick was trimmed, made sure that the flame never burned out. And so what is Jesus saying as the one who walks amongst the seven lampstands which are His church, as the heavenly priest? He is saying, I will do the same for you while you are here on earth. I am walking amongst you. I am protecting you. I am guarding you. I am trimming your wick so that you will not burn out. Right? Fear not for the for, for the gates of hell cannot prevail against the kingdom of God. That is the message right here. That is the message of these verses that we have read here today in our text. Right? So brothers and sisters, and as we draw to a close, let us take up our Lord's call then right, to remain faithful witnesses, to never compromise in a world that is hostile towards Christ and the Gospel. Right, let us not fear. Remember who stands by our side and who is walking in our midst. It is the God-man Jesus Christ, the Son of God, true light of true light, very God of very God, begotten and not made. So let us take courage as we reign with Christ our King now by killing sin and overcoming temptation through much tribulation and with patient endurance until Christ comes in flaming fire to destroy the enemies of His church and to bring relief to all of His saints. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, we thank You for Christ, our prophet, priest, and King. We thank You, Father, for giving us a peek behind the veil. We thank You, Father, for allowing us to behold in part the, the glory of Christ through Your written Word.
Uh, we thank you, Father, for this encouragement that you have given to us today. That although we are going to live in a world of, of tribulation and persecution so long as we exist on this earth, that, Father, we can still live in peace because we have overcome the world in Jesus Christ. May we be reminded of this each and every day so that we might maintain our faithful witness. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.